everyone. Welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow, and I'm joined by my best man, Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Big Dick Richie? Ooh, yeah. Huh. Let's Pump go. I'm, I'm pumped to be here. It's here. Magic Mike's last dance. We have Channing Tatum and Steven Soderbergh. They have dipped back in to the Magic Mike Well, a movie that 10 years ago made pretty much everyone involved filthy rich. They made Magic Mike for... Uh, next to nothing, five to six million dollars of all their own money. The producers, Tatum, Soderbergh, and it grossed a shitload of money. The profit margins were some of the best for a mainstream movie in the past 10 years. I am not joking. Soderbergh retired for a few years. His longtime collaborator, Gregory Jacobs, directed a sequel, Magic Mike XXL. But Soderbergh still stuck around to shoot and edit that. That was in 2015. Now it's 2023. And this whole gang thought it would be a good idea to get the Magic Mike crew back. Did we love it? Was it worth going to see in the theater? I love this movie. I was so glad that they brought it back. Oh, I loved it. A thousand percent worth it. A thousand percent worth <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. You know, I think a huge question for a lot of people is like, why go back for a third one? You know, I mean, we are actually recording this a few weeks after the movie has come out. I'm sure it will undoubtedly be on streaming soon and they Soderbergh actually made a deal with HBO Max you know this tested so well that they were just going to put it on the platform and they were like okay we'll put it in a few thousand theaters for you and it hasn't made nearly as much money as the first two but whatever I don't care for Soderbergh fans for Magic Mike fans for XXL fans I really thought this delivered I loved it I saw it twice in two days. <laughs> oh, nice. I mean, I bought a absolutely great tear of being the only guy in every Magic Mike screening I've ever been to. Saw the first one twice in the theater. I was absolutely the only guy. Saw XXL once, only guy. And I've seen Last Dance twice. And it's just all women every time. And the women in my second viewing of Last Dance were having a hell of a time. Thursday, 5.30 p.m., <laughs> hell of a time. <laughs> Splitting a bottle of wine. They were great, but... Far be it for me to go, ah, Soderbergh, maybe you shouldn't make that, you know, third movie in Magic Mike. I never doubt Soderbergh. I'm, I'm up for anything, whatever it's going to be. If it's a thing on a streaming app, I'll download the app and watch it. And then the streaming app goes away. Rest in peace, Quibi. But whatever, I'm here for Soderbergh always. And this delivered yeah. as a Soderbergh fan. This is just another example of why he's just one of the best working like filmmakers that we have. And I feel like no one, we do. But no one really gives him a lot of credit. I think he goes very low under the radar in terms of what he's doing in the movie industry today. Like, yeah, this deal he's got with HBO Max, he, he's got a blank check. He can, he literally can yeah, do what he just does it. Yeah. And, and like he did Kimmy, he did No Sudden Move. So he's releasing like these like low key bangers, let them all talk, like another one, like, and, mm -hmm. and, and now he's going back to Magic Mike. And I remember we were in the theater for Babylon. Yeah, yeah. And we were watching the trailers, and then I had no idea this was even a thing. Mm -hmm. And when all of a sudden I was like, no, they're not doing this. And then I was waiting for it to see if it was Soderbergh directing. Mm -hmm. And then it was. And then we just looked at each other and we we're like, this movie's going to fuck. Oh, yeah, dude. It's going to rock. <laughs> and it did. It did. It, like, it just, uh, it really, really delivered. Okay, but let's go back to that, like, the low-key Soderbergh thing. 
Yeah, he's, I mean, we talked about this a lot on the Magic Mike podcast, which we did ages ago. That was when we recorded our one-year anniversary podcast episode, we called out four, the four episodes we wanted to do most. Mm -hmm. You said your two were Magic Mike and Philip Seymour Hoffman, which check, check. Mine were Igmar Bergman, check, and Montgomery Clift, which, you know, TBD. But I just want to say Magic Mike has meant a lot to what are you watching podcast? It sure has. It's never gone away. This podcast is steeped in Magic Mike lore. I, you were kind of uh, talking crap about it before you had of seen course. it. You saw it on my movie rack, and I'm like, you got it. You got to check it out. You finally did, and you loved it. But my point is that Soderbergh, basically post Che, so like post 2008, just wants to make movies. He just wants to make movies about form. He doesn't want to make dead serious films about, you know, water pollution or drug trafficking or whatever it's going to be. Just wants to make movies. He doesn't seem to particularly care how they are distributed. I mean, he he definitely wants Magic Mike's Last Dance to make some money, yeah. but he I've read interviews with him and he goes, I don't even know if there's a theatrical market for this kind of movie now. Like, I, there probably isn't. Certainly not like there was 10 years ago. And it seems like he may be right. I mean, it's going to about break even with its money, which I think is okay. But yeah, it's like one a year from him. He's cranking out one a year. They go on HBO. And yes, no one is talking about them. I think people in the industry have a lot of respect for him and yeah. his attitude. He's very well liked. He's very well respected. And then also his work ethic. He just crunches stuff out. But audiences seem to have, you know, this isn't we're, we're not here talking about Oceans 11, 12 and 13 today, which were massively popular. We're talking about his other trilogy. But I guess in the wake of not making Oceans 11 type movies anymore, maybe mass audiences seem to have. I don't know. They're just not keeping up with him as much as I think he deserves to be kept up with. But you and I always love him. And we always make a point to talk about his movies on this podcast, whether they make like our end of the year list or if it didn't like Kimmy, we still brought it up because it's worth talking about. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's he's one of my gods. I always say that every time he gets brought up, he's one of my, I don't know, three favorite living directors. I love him as a director, as a cinematographer, which we're going to talk about, as an editor, as a producer, yep. all of it, all of it. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, you, you basically, I mean, in so many ways, it kind of mirrored what you want to do in this industry off of what he does. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about a director that, I mean, you look at all the big directors that, you know, people talk about today that are living, like Fincher's always talked about, mm -hmm. um, PTA, you know, you just kind of go down the list of the ones that are always referenced, and he's never one of them, right. yet he is doing some of the most innovative stuff and has been now for the last 30 years. Um, but really quick, because I just I, I know what you're talking about when you when you talked about form. Mm -hmm. But could you elaborate a little bit more on when he says that Soderbergh, when sure. he says, I'm only interested in working with form? Mm -hmm. What is that? Yeah, he does not give a shit. So it seems anymore about what a character is thinking. He only gives a shit about what a character is going to do. We'll take Magic Mike's Last Dance, for example. This is why I'm obsessed with process. Steven Soderbergh loves process. A lot of this movie, we're, yeah, I know we're jumping ahead. We'll get to it. It's just a big setup. It's not unlike an, yeah. an Ocean's Eleven style setup. There's no heist involved, but everyone's getting ready for a big thing and they're practicing and they're rehearsing and it's a big thing. And this movie is going to end with this big thing that they have to pull off and there's a lot riding on it. And a lot of the movie is just watching people set up for this stuff. There's no one really, yeah. there's not a lot of Magic Mike's Last Dance with Mike like sitting kind of pondering or like, you know, crying like, God, I wish there, there's not a lot of reflection here. There was a little bit in XXL, yeah. which Soderbergh didn't direct, but he's not really a guy who's interested in showing a lot of reflection. He's more interested in like, okay, 
I have to do a really hot shit dance number at the end of this, because people who saw XXL know that that movie ended with a doozy of a dance scene, and it does. So how yeah. am I even going to be able to top that? That's where form comes in. Fine, let's bring in rain. Let's bring in rain on the stage. Let's bring in shit people have never seen before. Let's try out this new camera. What's this weird thing? It's a red camera, which no one had ever heard of. He goes and makes two movies with it, Che Part 1 and Che Part 2. So he's not like, everything has to be shot in pristine 35-millimeter film, like, say, Nolan or Tarantino. He's interested in saying... If I have a tool that I can use to make a movie, like editing software on my computer or an iPhone, I'm at least going to try it. I don't know if it's going to succeed, but I'm at least going to try it. So that's what I mean with form. He's just contagion. We get a little bit of insight into like Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon, but I don't know what the fuck anyone's thinking in that movie, like about their personal yeah. life. It, does, it doesn't matter. Kate Winslet's character, it's personified so well in her. When she's diagnosed and she wakes up, she's never like, oh my God, I have to call my family. Oh my God. And that would be in any other movie by any other director. And it would make sense. Yeah. But he's like, no, that character wakes up and just accepts her fate right away. And it's like calling the hotel staff saying, you need to make sure that anyone who cleaned this room is okay. Like she's just process. How are we getting it done? Not, oh, I have all this trauma behind me and I'm having trouble dealing with it now. So he's just not really interested in like, he's not really interested in those story mechanics. He's much more concerned with plot now. What's driving it forward, driving it forward. Haywire, a lot of people you know, don't really talk about that movie. That's one of his best straight form movies because show me any other fight scenes from the past, I don't know, 30, 40 years, the majority of them, just to hand it, two people fighting, it's cut into oblivion. Cut, 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 cut. Because, you know, there's they're cutting around stunt performers. They're not really hitting each other. There he goes, he makes haywire. The camera just sits there and it like barely cuts and you're watching people beat the shit out of each other. That's playing with form. Yeah. He's like, you guys haven't seen this in a while. Watch this. So that's just, that's all I mean. That's what he's much more interested in. If I'm going with Magic Mike, He's very clearly interested in, in terms of form, how can I make this movie look different? Because it has those wild, crazy-ass filters, which I am yeah. sad to admit were gone from XXL and gone from Last Dance, but it's cool that we got it for that one movie. And just, yeah, so that's what I mean by form. You're not going to get a lot of uh, sentiment in a Soderbergh movie. I mean, you will if you go, like, Traffic has a lot of sentiment. Aaron Brockovich has a lot yeah. of sentiment. You even get some sentiment with Clooney and Julia Roberts in the Oceans movies. That stuff's gone. He's just interested in making movies and telling compelling stories. This is not a dude who's trying to win Oscars. He already has an Oscar. He won one in 2000 for Best Director for Traffic. I would not be surprised if a Soderbergh movie really never gets nominated for a major award again. Maybe something technical, but like director, picture. I don't know if that'll ever happen. And he's totally okay with that. Long answer, sorry. No, no, it's a great answer. Do you think that when he's working with his actors, because mm -hmm. it's not like, hey, go out there and do whatever the fuck you want. Sure. But maybe there is to a degree a bit of like, how much do I want to play in this scene in terms of, yeah, reflection maybe, or mm -hmm. anything that kind of, allows a character to sit in whatever they're feeling or do they just keep it keep it going yeah i mean i love this there's so many examples like everyone who works with him loves him because he works so quickly and he operates his own camera and he yeah. is his own cinematographer so he's setting up the lighting steven soderbergh works very economically you're talking two three takes and if it's going over that it's based on things he is messing up something was out of focus something fell in the background 
It's not based on performance. This is why some of his performances in his movies are very deliberate and they can seem, quote unquote, not to me, quote unquote, flat. And we've talked about this. He's very interested sometimes in realism, hence all the emotional stuttering that Channing Tatum does in Magic Mike and Cody Horn, you know, just w- when he's like really conflict and he can't like, uh, uh, yeah, we don't really see that in movies a lot. You know, actors are supposed to deliver their lines clearly. Sasha Gray playing in the girlfriend experience is giving a realistic human performance, but still something kind of flat in terms of movie dumb. So Rooney Mara described this perfectly. She went from filming Girl with the Dragon Tattoo with Fincher, where you're doing, you know, 80, 90 takes. She's losing all this weight. She's getting yep. piercing. She has to do all this crazy shit. Prep, prep, prep all the time. Her, her next role after that was for David Fincher's good friend, Steven Soderbergh, in a movie called Side Effects, where she is now doing like two, three takes max, and then you move on. And she says, it's my job as an actor to bend to their style. That's I true. can't show up and go, I want 50 takes from every director on every setup. Yeah. If Steven is doing is giving me three, then I have to do it in three. And if David is going to do 100, then I have to know that it's going to take 100. So I think that's part of like the form thing. I, I, I don't think he's interested in hmm, the specificity that you see in David Fincher's work, where David Fincher is, you know, going through something over and over. So you're not going to find like a David Fincher shot where there's like a camera bump or the camera accidentally shakes. Yeah. It doesn't happen. You don't see it. You see it in Soderbergh's work all the time. You see it in Contagion. He's just like, I think in one scene, he has a uh, camera in a fucking wheelchair, just like following Jennifer Eel. It's like, <laughs> he, he doesn't care. It's like, let's move it forward. Let's pump yep. it. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. And the sacrifice of that, of that work ethic of working so hard and so quickly and economically is that he's not associated with the word prestige anymore. And perhaps this is why yeah. less people talk about him now. But I think he's okay with that. I'm okay with it. So it's what he wants to do. So when he's writing... He doesn't write. He doesn't write. Uh, he, th- that's what he said. He had to get out of his own way. He wrote Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and then he tried to write his next few movies, and he said what broke his career wide open with Out of Sight was that he realized, I'm not a good screenwriter. I got lucky once with Sex, Lies. I have to get out of my own way. So he does not write his movies. He, he is handed scripts And he has input on them, of course, but it's like, cool, here's our document. Let's go. Not unlike they make completely different movies, but it's kind of the exact same thing Clint Eastwood did for Warner Brothers for decades. It's essentially what Soderbergh does. Hand him a script and you go shoot it. You just do a few takes. You don't make a big fuss about it. Everyone goes home. Damn. Yeah. That's wild. That's why I love him. But yet still, while he doesn't write, he still shoots most everything himself. He edits most everything himself. Soderbergh, I'm talking about. So when you're doing that and you said, you know, very graciously earlier that I kind of tried to model myself after him, that was only because I was reading interviews and he was saying I was trying to get movies made, but I couldn't find someone to shoot it. Like I couldn't afford someone to shoot it. So I go, okay, I, you know, so I just taught myself how to shoot and I taught myself how to sound mix. And he's saying like, I'm not the brightest guy in the world. So if I can figure it out, uh, anyone can. And I go, okay, I'm not the brightest guy in the world either. Let me see if I can figure <laughs> it out. And he'll post like pictures of him just with his laptop, like on a train, editing something you just shot on his iPhone. And then it's going to be on Netflix in, you know, four months. It's crazy. It's crazy. That's just, that's just wild. I, you know, it, it's, it's tough because like he's put himself in the position. So it's, it's, it's inspiring in a lot of ways to filmmakers because mm-hmm. you're like, 
you really can do whatever you want these days. But in terms of it getting out there, like exactly. he's got deals with exactly. he's got a career that is set up so it's not as cut and dry easy as it sounds like it is, but essentially the work that he's doing is something that anyone could do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's his whole ethos is that yes, sometimes he shoots on red cameras and you know he has crews and all that, but He's not someone who needs a Christopher Nolan budget or a Tarantino budget or a Fincher budget. He's making all of his movies uh, very, again, economically, and he's not pissing off his studio bosses. You know, he's had a really, really interesting career. I mean, I, I don't know. There's just so much it's to go so into. so interesting. I mean, he got fired from Moneyball. He pre-produced that and built it up from the ground up. He cast almost everyone. He cast Brad Pitt. Like, it, that was his movie. And then, I, I don't know, they just fired him and brought in Bennett Miller. Like right at the very end. I, I don't know. That's it's weird. Like he's had he's had a crazy, crazy career. That's crazy. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that he was that the Moneyball was like his that like it was his. Yeah. He developed it from the ground up and <sighs> it got I think there were just creative differences. I'm not sure what those were, but yeah, that's a whole other uh, just a whole other thing. You know, now that you even say that, it kind of like I can feel a little bit of Soderbergh in that movie. Yeah. It's yeah. got a I could see how it lives in the same same arena. Well, it has no real sentiment in it. There's like no emotional yeah, attachment. Exactly. I mean, he cares about his daughter and that's Outside Brad Pitt. Outside the daughter. Yeah. yeah. And that's the one thing. But there's not a lot of like, even his like remembrances of baseball. Like, you know, how can you not be romantic about baseball? There's no one sitting around like crying. Yeah. Like we lost. I don't know. It's just not like that. Do you prefer to see uh, characters move through a story with more of this type of just you personally. Yeah. Do you do you like seeing characters live through their their story is emotionally throughout a movie? Would you rather see it more less is more or you kind of want to see a character really live in that emotional life? Yeah, I I love the way this conversation is going to because we've never had a full yeah. on open Soderbergh conversation. So I, as a movie fanatic, want a mix of just everything. I don't expect everything yeah. in one movie. Certainly not everywhere. Certainly not all at once. <laughs> I just need wow. <laughs> to <laughs> stick, like, introduce me to a style. You know, Soderbergh has a great rule. If I'm watching your movie, if I don't have your movie kind of figured out of what or, or what you are trying to say in the first three shots of your film, then... I don't know if this is going to be a success, even if that means like, whoa, like you have to hook someone in in those first three shots. I did an article on my blog where I assessed the first three shots of every Soderbergh movie to see if they held up. And they really do, including this one, like they really hold up. So kind of an alternate version of your question is, do I wish Soderbergh would go back to making Traffic, which remains my favorite Soderbergh film, or do I mind that he makes these movies where people, you know, just do fun plot stuff? I I would love for him to go back to serious filmmaking. I would. But since he has no desire to do that, I go, uh, okay, I, I love No Sudden Move. I loved Kimmy. I mean, I, yeah. I loved this movie. So I accept that that's what he is in now. But no, I don't want to see every movie I see is not like some heavy plot driven thing where characters aren't discussed. I frankly feel on this podcast, we talk about the other stuff more, the hard, hard story yeah. stuff, the hard, hard character yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we talk about characters who have immense trauma and, you know, it's completely different ways of telling a story. And I think there's room for everything. I would, you know, the majority of films that we talk about and watch are very 
story driven, very character focused on this podcast. We do not talk a lot about act one, act two, act three. It's a give and take, but I, I, I think there's room for everything. But I also love all of his work, so maybe I'm not the right person to ask. <laughs> I don't know. Well, no, I'm, I'm thinking about, um, well, in, in this movie in particular, you know, with, with that just forward driving momentum that he has, I think this movie, in terms of just the Magic Mike series, this might have it the most. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're just getting into the plot of it. Yeah, yeah. He, we, we just start off with him in the middle of his life. There's not really a recap. No. Nope. We, we, but... There's like the narration. There's a voiceover where that girl pops in. Yeah. Like every like it seems to be like every act. Every if there was an act structure, she kind of like there's like a lead in with this voiceover. And that's form right there. Soderbergh does not yeah. do voiceover a lot, let alone from like a teenager that sounds like it should be from the age of innocence. It's it was perfect. I was just dying laughing. Yeah. I was I loved it. I loved it. it- and and those things that she was saying were, I think, the best written things about the movie. Yeah, like they yeah. were poignant, they were thought provoking. Like I remember when I heard that, I would go, "Oh wow!" But I got everything I needed. And then in watching his performance, Channing Tatum, he he. Well, number one, he's so cool. He like is. he's just he like is. you know, he he very much is Mike in all three of these movies, but. He's not spending a lot of time, and to your point, reflecting. Mm-hmm. He's just sort of living. You know, when when she asks him, you know, like, "What are you doing? Um, bartending?" Yeah, uh, you just know, here. Yeah, I'm just here. What 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 do you want? And then when he wants to know what's going on, he does make it clear in the asking of the question, um, "What am I doing here? Why are we here?" But we don't see him like dwelling in this. Like you are, as I'm watching, I go, yeah, what are we doing here? But I'm also not as attached. Mm -hmm, And then when we find out, it still delivers. It still hits. And it's like, oh, that's what we're doing here. She's setting him up to be a director of this play. Okay. And then that's his reaction too. He's like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Very loose. Very go with the flow. Yeah. Yeah. And the first one has to have like. I mean, we still don't really get to know him that much. It's not like he talks yeah. about his childhood. It's nothing no. like that. XXL, which Soderbergh did not direct, that's where you get your road trip reflection. And all the guys get to talk about yeah. what they're missing out of life, what they're not doing, their dreams. That's what that's for. But And they all get to have their moments. And I appreciate that movie for that. But yeah, Magic Mike's Last Dance is this process movie of we have a thing to do. He doesn't know what it is yet. And then once he figures it out, it's like, okay, we got to put on the show. So let's go. We got to go do it. And there's really no like looking back there. There's no scene that like calms everything down. And we're talking about, you know, when I got into dance when I was a kid, it's like, yeah, there's yeah. none of that. There's none. And yeah, there's an interesting, we, we just called it coolness, but there's like this, this affability to Channing Tatum that makes me like him so much as just a famous person and particularly as Mike, because we got to remember, like, this dude came from nowhere. We're, we'll talk about his career a little later, but he had no industry connections, no family members, nothing like that. He just comes and wants to be in movies. He can dance. He's this ex-stripper. Like, he knows. He, so he gets into a few roles and then he just works his way up to become a bona fide star and give some yeah. really genuinely good performances. And what's so interesting about him is that when I watch him, especially as Magic Mike, I see this look of like, I can't believe all this is fucking happening. Yeah. Like, holy shit, I still can't believe this is happening. 
you can see that playing as Channing Tatum, like, I can't believe this. This is so cool. And then as Mike, like, man, I'm in London now. Like, I don't know what's going on, but this, this is cool. This is cool. It's everything's going in tandem there. It's, it's a great marriage of performance. I mean, you know, he said he based yeah. the character somewhat on himself, but the character has evolved as he has evolved as a person and actor. It's just a good, again, good marriage, good blending. Yeah. And I, I looking back at um, all of the Chang Tatum's career, I actually think his my favorite roles from him are dominantly from all Soderbergh performances. Yeah. yeah. That's a I mean, that's like a he huge works with him quite a bit. Yeah, he does. He does. And again, we'll we'll get into him and some of the other people in the movie. But yeah, let's let's circle back to Magic Mike's last yeah. dance here. Yep. I'll give I mean, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I know. Let, let me just let me catch people up. And us, because you and I have never really had a proper conversation about XXL. But Mm. Magic Mike, 2012, we meet Mike as a dancer, an entrepreneur in Tampa. He has friends. He's struggling to make ends meet. This is an art film disguised as a male stripper romp because it is not that. Three years later, Mike, he's now estranged from the gang from the first film. He reunites with them and they go on a road trip from Tampa to Myrtle Beach for a dance contest. You know, XXL is really the male stripper romp that I think a lot of people wanted the first one to be. But moreover, XXL is one of the most passionately repped movies on film Twitter to this day. (laughs) Do not ever bash XXL on film Twitter or you will get killed. People (laughs) love this movie and I like it more every time I watch it. I love the journey of getting to know each person you know, there's that uh, when they all do Molly in the morning and there's just that yeah. <laughs> fantastic hard cut to 54 minutes later and Matt Bober's just with that lollipop and then you get, you know, what are you fucking 12, dude? Just take it. It's like it's like <laughs> six in the morning, seven in the morning. Uh, I love it. I love it. Um, I, as I mentioned, that ends with a big dance off. And now it's 2023. Mike is doing event bartending in Miami and things are, you know, they're OK, I guess. He has the same optimistic attitude. He's polite. He's smart. He's engaging. I wouldn't say he's content. And then he, by circumstance, meets a very rich woman, played by Selma Hayek, who wants to give Magic Mike one last chance for one last dance. <laughs> so that's based, that's the brief setup. But okay, we've talked about Magic Mike plenty. We did a whole episode about it. Let's just kind of talk about how we were going into Magic Mike's last dance based on those first two films. because. When I first heard about Last Dance, I went, you know, immediately go, oh, I thought they kind of ended that. Okay, I'm here for it because it's Soderbergh, but I know there's a lot of people going, they didn't need to make this third one. So how did you feel about how XXL just tied everything up? Were, did you even think they would go back to this character? I mean, no, I, I didn't. And, and, um, but I also didn't think that it, it wasn't a far stretch to think that they couldn't. Yeah. Because I think with Mike... You're talking about a guy that is sort of just like you could drop him in any situation. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. could just make a movie based on on just him. And that's kind of what this was. Yeah. Yeah. With XXL, when I saw it, I knew I was getting into what because Soderbergh didn't direct it. And I think I got in my head about that. I think yeah. I was like, well, yeah, you sat on the Magic Mike pod. You were like, it ended so perfectly. Like, why do I want to go? Back into that story, and I was like, fair, that, that's yeah. a fair point. It, that's always a fair point. If the first one or the second one ended fine, and you don't want to open it up for yourself, I get it. So that's why I was so glad you went back to it. And yes, it's a huge 
detractor for any Soderbergh fan to see that it is not directed by him. You go, ugh. But, you know. And and I think, like, getting into it, I was like, okay, we are going to get the romp. We're, we're, we're not going to get the art house movie. We have fun. Mm-hmm. But once I did, I was like, okay, I, I get it. Like, we're not going to get that. That's okay. I, I, me just being me, wish that we could have gotten another yeah. art house type one with this. But then I leaned into what it was doing. And I mean, the dance numbers in that movie are phenomenal. They're so much fun. And you do get to know the guys a little bit more. I had a great time with the movie. And now that I've seen this third one, that's what made me appreciate the second one even more because I was like, okay. Oh, cool. The first one is the first one. Listen to that episode. You can see how we feel about it. <laughs> the second one is the second one. And then this one is, it couldn't be more different than the first one or the second one. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right. And when we get that one scene with the guys on the computer. That's where I want to go next. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that made me appreciate the second one more because I was like, all right. This is just in this guy's life. These are his guys. And no matter where they are, they're they're still kind of there. That's where I want to start because I've, I'm hearing some criticisms or just shock. Because I was a little shocked at as Magic Mike's Last Dance is going on. I mean, we're only like 25 minutes into it. I I went ding, ding, ding. I don't think there's room in here for the other guys. Yeah. I don't know if we're even going to see them. Yeah. And then they do give us a cameo. There's a Zoom call. Matthew McConaughey is not there. He wasn't in XXL. That's fine. There's a Zoom call. So I, I had this for later, but how did you feel about that? Were you let down by it? I'm hearing a lot of people who were like, oh, I just wish we could have seen more of those guys and it didn't have to be on a Zoom call. But my kind of counter is that Mike is going around recruiting like, legit dancers for this stage play like he needs real real dancers people who can dance by his own admission even better than him yeah and if you watch magic mike and magic mike xxl with all due respect ain't none of those guys can dance like jane and tatum (laughs) can dance but they they can't be on that stage doing what these uh magnificent performers at the end of last dance are doing so i got it and there's no reason they couldn't be back. I mean, why not? There's what you're saying. It's like this could, I don't know, maybe it's Soderbergh's James Bond. He just takes Mike from city to city. And, you know, yeah. maybe he just has solo like two hander with uh, your wrestler guy, you know, and it's just them. It's just him and Tarzan just going out doing something. The possibilities are endless. That's all I'm saying. But yeah. So how, how did you feel about that? Like taking that different direction? I mean, we're out of Florida. We start in Florida, but we go to cold, chilly London very quickly, and none of the guys there. So how'd you feel about that? I I, I liked it a lot, actually, having them not there, yeah. because it felt like it was such a departure for Mike, the character himself, to leave. You know, when Selma Hayek tells him, I want to take you to London with me, he's like, I, I can't do that. I've got a life. I've got, you know, I can't just... Yeah. But really, he can, because he's a very kind of <laughs> temporary person in that way. So... What I appreciate about the Zoom call was what what this guy Mike has is got he's got a foundation of good friends, and mm-hmm. they're all wondering what he's doing because he doesn't even know. But they're all supportive. They're all given their like you know two cents. But this is Mike's thing. Like he like he just got plucked from by Selma Hayek to this thing. Like <laughs> I kind of appreciated that this was Mike's journey. And he had to do it alone. And, yeah. and just for one moment, we got to see, you know, his support. 
like we from his friend group, right. and then and then it's really uh, it's him. Yeah, I mean, it's just him off on his own. And, yeah, yeah. And they were supportive on the Zoom call, like they were kind of busting his balls. But I love Matt Bober just in that Zen Ken vibe. Just yeah. so like, no, I feel the energy, man. And everyone was like supporting him. And I, yeah, I really, I really, really liked it. So okay, let's go back to we're gonna run through a bit of the setup in the scenes of Last Dance here. So, like I said, we set up where Mike is now. We really do just start. Yeah. And he's a Miami event bartender. I love how easily he got back into Mike's yep. smoothness. Like, the way he handles that encounter with the woman from the first movie, which is really cool. And it's in the trailer. But, you know, quote, unquote, I used to be a cop. I don't even think her, like, current boyfriend ever really figured it no, out. No, he never like, did. I don't. And, and, and Tatum... Rather, Mike could have blown up the spot so easily, but he doesn't. There's no need to. And instead, you know, he's like, he's so affable. She's talking about, yeah, I'm a lawyer now. And he's like, oh, what kind of law do you practice? Seems like a throwaway line, but he like actually means it. He's actually interested. He's not an empty Dumbo shell of an event bartender. Yeah. Mike has heart. (laughs) He has thoughts. Yeah. Um, Okay. Not just a piece of meat. (laughs) Exactly. He's not a piece of meat. Don't judge him. He's doing this event, he's bartending, and he catches the eye of the host, who's played by Selma Hayek, Pignol. That's how she's credited in this. That's her husband's last name, who is apparently like a gazillionaire in real life. And this, I love that she was in this, and I love her performance in this. Anyway, yeah, she's great. She is playing a wife of a rich woman. She doesn't seem very keen on her husband. He's like some shitty, you know, British guy. He's done stuff, but he gives her an allowance, but... Selma Hayek just needs some, you know, companionship and she pays, she offers to pay Mike an exorbitant amount of money, which the whole time I'm thinking they're talking about sex, right? And they get up to $60,000 as a joke. And she's like, Hey, 6,000. I'm like, this dude's about to make $6,000 to, you know, get it on. No, it is $6,000 to dance, Yeah, to put on a dance for Selma Hayek. And this was like, it's a hell of a dance, man. I mean, this was it's a hell of a dance. This got hell uh, of a dance. people in my movie theater crowd. They were at, people were cheering. They were <laughs> stirring in their seats. And I mean, it's essentially a, a like a very long clothed sex scene yeah. with no sex. I mean, Soderbergh as a director really is not interested in sex. I can count those kind of scenes, I think, on one hand from his films. Um, this actually reminded me a bit of George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, Tris from Out of Sight, where you see everything but the actual lovemaking. The last dance scene is way more passionate and freaky deaky than Out of Sight, <laughs> but it's kind of a similar vibe. And I just love this scene. They're both absolutely on fire. And I love that even though it does end with a consensual act of fornication, it's never seen. Yeah. And Selma Hayek's character makes it very clear, hey, that was just a one-off. Like, I do want you to come to London for a month for this thing that I'm not going to tell you about, but this isn't about us hooking up. This is about, like, me kind of screwing over my soon-to-be ex-husband and you trying something new, because why not? Yeah. You don't have anything else to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly it. <laughs> so that's a setup. That's exactly I mean, it. Yeah, and now we're, like, you know, 20, 25 minutes into the movie, but that first dance goes on for so long, and there's such long takes i mean these are them doing it and the way he connects the the shots with those long crossfades like it was just gorgeous it was great oh it was so good and i love the color palette mm, that there's mm. uh that that's the other thing that was very different like if you talk about the first one you've got the crazy filters which yeah we both love 
XXL is just bright. Yeah. Feels like yeah. that. And in, and these are... We've, Neon, all yep. that. Yeah. And then this one, you've got, like, it looks like London. It's gr- it's gray, but there's also, like, in even just, like, feels like the the like the stage where they work, the, those reds, they're very deep. Mm-hmm. There's They're, mm-hmm. like, deep purples, very. deep reds grays and and it, it it gives the movie a look that the other ones don't have and it feels a little bit more mature it feels more um it's it's just a little bit more serious in a certain kind of way and um and it works works so well yeah it's just a little bit more natural and lived in and when there needs to be crazy lighting it's in a natural setting like in stage that theater for sure yeah so we talked about this offer a bit you know Selma Hayek very quickly is like, I want you to come to London for a month. Not going to tell you why. They play this out for a little bit. You know, I mean, he goes all the way there. And I love the little interaction he has with uh, the butler. He's oh, like, yeah. Do you know what the fuck I'm doing here, man? Yeah. Like, I, I, I am going to say, you know, fans of this podcast know that we are both no strangers to using foul language. And we have, you know. I just love that this movie lets people talk how people talk sometimes. Like they say fuck kind of casually. There's no, I, I, I don't know. I just, I love that. It's never over the top, but just being like to this really proper British butler, like, do you know what the fuck I'm doing here, man? I just love yeah. that. I yeah. loved it. And he's like, uh, no, no. So the setup. Okay. So there's a famous theater in London that her husband's family owns and they just put up the same damn play like every night, every night, every week, whatever it is, it sells out, but it's, a, you know, it's a stuffy old British play. What Salma Hayek wants to do is come in for one night only, one night only, and put on Sabotage, the old play, and do a new rendition of it that is all about, you know, dancing through female empowerment. So it's it's all male dancers. And so it's simultaneously a middle finger to her soon-to-be ex-husband and her soon-to-be ex-mother-in-law, it would seem. Here's one thing I missed the first time. It really is for one night. She knows this yeah. is like in the stuffy you know, British theater culture, this is not going to go over well. She's just trying to give whatever ladies show up to the event kind of the time of their life with this one night only show. And that's really the setup. And of course, Mike, a stripper from Tampa, does not feel qualified to direct a stage play in London, but he jumps on board. Everyone helps out. And from there, we kind of have a, honestly, I got a bit of an Ocean's 12 vibe yes. with this one because yes, 100%. Yeah, they have to build an unconventional team from within the movie but the movie itself is playing with that Soderberghian form that I talked about, starting with the narration that feels a little playful, a little bit, you know, Edith Wharton, Age of Innocence. And I found that very intentional, very amusing. Obviously, the European setting, I just, even with his cutting styles, I was like, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but I, yeah. if I was labeling them this does feel like the ocean's 12 of this franchise a little looser but still like mature i don't know it's, it's just that soderbergh tempo that he sets it makes it fun to watch people like setting up a play i don't even know what the hell they're doing half the time i just like watching it well and that's it and that's also kind of the the best part about it is like it we don't ever really know what they're doing like we see like like little bit of like when when they're rehearsing and they're coming up with an idea of a of a scene or a dance, we see like a little bit and then that's it. So we don't know like what they're trying to do. And then when they give it to us at the end, mm-hmm. that's a I, I, I realize at a certain point I go, OK, they're going to that's how they're going to do this. They're they're going to let us in in these little snapshots of them putting together something. But 
even they don't know how it's going. Yeah. Like she she keeps changing things. Yeah, exactly. We hear throughout the work that they've put on something really, really great. And mm-hmm. and and so I'm like, okay, so that's what they're gonna give us at the end. They're gonna show us what they've done. And uh I, I like that. I liked not knowing anything throughout the movie and where it's revealing itself as it goes. And again, like it rem- that reminded me a lot of the process of Ocean's Eleven, where they are cluing us into like we're gonna, you know, create like they 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 build this whole casino, just this whole separate vault, just to keep practice runs and keep trying it out. They don't tell us that we're gonna yeah. plug this in and use this and trick them into thinking that it's real. But you're just following along enough to when you do get to the final heist, you're like, oh, there's that detail. Oh, that that's why they were carrying balloons earlier. There's that. There's that. This is the same thing. Again, it's not a heist. It's a big dance number, but you're just seeing it go the whole time. And then he's cluing you in on enough stuff that when you land there, you're like, not only did I, was I ready to see this, but I really wanted it to go well. I had that tension, that anxiety of like, is this going to bomb? Is something going to happen of any sort? You know, is someone, there's some talk of like, they might come in and like stop the show and they have to go about doing that to kind of like honeypot the woman responsible yeah. who would be in charge of this. And they do the same exact thing in like Logan Lucky. I, it's just, uh-huh. th- it's a, that Logan Lucky is another great comp to this of really showing us like, how can we pull off this heist? And then they actually, you know, do the thing. And he excludes little things along the way that I, you know, I just love, I always love watching him set something up. The the movie is a business partnership. Mm-hmm. It weaves in and out of their personal thing. Sure, sure. But we never feel like, like oh God, like these two are falling in love. Mm-hmm. We see the way that they deal with one another. And you see the way that like, she, like what's so great about Selma Hayek is she goes crazy a lot. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> My favorite scene, I think, in the whole entire movie is the cab scene. Oh, yes, Or not the yes. cab, but in the back seat well, yeah, of the car. Well, yeah, she doesn't go in cab. She's driven around because she's rich. But yes, this is a very, she's very dri- important yeah, moment. Yes. And just to interject, at, at, just by way of setting it up, because this is good we're talking about it. I touched on it earlier, but yeah, once they get to London, like Mike's kind of like, oh, yeah, this is going to be like a thing. Like, I'm shacking up. And she's like, no. This is not what that is. Yep. What we had that night was really special. This is a business partnership. That's what she says. But then, you know, as weeks go yep. by, things start to, there are glances, there are looks, and that now we're in the back of a, of her driver's car. And that kind of sets up, you know, to where we, yep. where we are. And they're just having a good, they're kind of cuddling, just having a good little chat. Like, it's all good. It's all good. And he's respectful to, you know, what she said. You know, he he tries like a little bit because he feels the moment. Mm-hmm. But then when she puts him in place about it, he's like, OK, then, you know, so she crosses that line that she's made yes. for herself a bit. And all he does is just basically like, are you sure mm-hmm. you you said no to doing this? And then she has like <laughs> a truly, truly amazing like flip out because it's not crazy, crazy. Right. <laughs> We're watching a character now kind of like backpedal her way out of something that she feels embarrassed right, about. That's where it's and she does from. it very specifically. Yeah. And it's it's just incredible. I, I I love that. I thought that was just such a such a cool way to do that. Yes, I agree. And so to go back to the car thing, yeah, she tries to kiss him and he does what yeah. he should do, which he's like, are, are you sure? I mean, you know he's down. 
But he's like, are you sure? Because you said you didn't want to do this. And then she has her, she has a little flip out of his, and he's just reacted like, uh, okay, okay. So the chemistry he has with Selma Hayek is just yeah. way better than anything else we've seen in the Magic Mike franchise. They are so on fire together when they're dancing, when they're bickering because of a business meeting or a problem on the stage that can't get resolved. That all leads to this final dance performance, which I do want to talk a little bit about, that he has clearly made the decision to structure it that is based on kind of their courtship and how they met and different things. And like they have that scene in the rain. So the final dance number on stage is in the rain. Yeah. And she's tracking on all this. And so everything that's gone on has led up to this final show one night only. And you know, there is like a Magic Mike stage play in London. Have you heard of this? I'm talking in real life. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, there's like strip shows or whatever in like Vegas, but they actually did a stage show in London. And I'm from what I'm told, it's a lot like what we see oh, okay. <laughs> in the movie. So I like that. That's cool. Yeah, I think, and it was that stage show, I believe, that got Soderbergh and Tatum interested in making this third movie. So everything's kind of connected here. But I'm not going to describe everything that goes on in this final dance scene. I mean, it's like it's about 25, 30 minutes of just this remarkable stage play they put on highlighted, I must say, with <laughs> an insane dance number that Tatum does on stage with a ballerina in the rain. I actually read a review of Magic Mike's Last Dance, and it said that if these two actors were not clothed in this scene, this movie could be rated NC-17 for how sexual this dance number is, even though there's no sex. And it's like, this is a bold statement, but it may be the dance highlight of this entire series of films. I was just watching it going like, First of all, Chan Tatum is 42 years old, and the man, I, Jesus Christ, he God, looks insane. great, and he can still move like he did in Magic Mike, like he doesn't step up. It is insane. It's wild. A ballerina he's on stage with, I mean, they just absolutely go for it, and I love that they give us that brief little insert of them drying themselves off, walking back to the room, and she's like, you said to bring it, so we brought it. Like, we showed up. Yeah. It, it just shows, like, the professional vibe, because you're you're watching them on stage, and you're like are these two people about to just like get it on right here? Like this is, <laughs> they, they're going for it, but it's not, they keep it professional, but that is the whole end performance was great. But that dance number was just really, really something else. This was a good example of actually, um, I appreciated a bit of the spoon feeding that he was giving us. Yeah. Same here. Throughout this dance, he's linking story wise, why these moments are happening in the dance. And they're reflecting back to the moments that he's had with Selma Hayek during this whole entire journey. They'll be performing the numbers on stage and they'll cut to Selma Hayek and the crowd who's loving it. And then we will get the movie will hard cut to something the dance is reflecting that we've already seen. Like he kind of recreates the dance he did with Selma Hayek in the room. Like he recreates it on stage. And then we're cross-cutting back and forth. Totally Soderbergh thing to do. Again, this film is edited by the great editor, Mary Ann Bernard, a.k.a. Steven Soderbergh. A.k.a. <laughs> if I didn't get those hard cuts, mm-hmm. I don't know if I necessarily would have made those connections. Same. Same. I remember even thought I'd go, I appreciate the spoon feeding right now. Like, I, I definitely wouldn't have gotten it. Yeah, I wouldn't Because there's times where movies spoon feed you and I'm like, you don't need to do that. And then there's times where you do, and I'm like, thank you for doing that, because now I'm appreciating what we're seeing so much more. So I, I, was, I became very aware of that, that choice, because you know when he's editing, he's like, all right, do you think they're going to get it? 
I don't think they're going to get it. I'm going to give it to him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he makes those decisions all the time. Just like, yeah, I didn't even really consider it a spoon feeding because I, I don't know. Frankly, I don't know how many people would have made those connections. Yeah. And yeah, he doesn't yeah. start doing it from the beginning. He waits a little bit. And then when he started doing that, I started to get chills a little bit. And I was like, oh, I see yeah. what this play is. Like, it's it's all for her. It's yep. all for. It's all for her. Well, Max, I guess we could be calling her Max and Mike. Max is Selma Hayek's name. I do that sometimes. I say character names versus actor names. Whatever. It's we're, fine. We're trying. We're trying. I try really hard. Try. <laughs> Channing Tatum. The man is 42 years old. You know, I had seen him in stuff, <sighs> but his career I, I kind of already mentioned this. His career has not been unlike Magic Mike himself. He takes these kind of quote unquote pretty boy roles and things like Coach Carter, Step Up, Fighting, G.I. Joe, Dear John. But then Soderbergh really unlocks him. First with Haywire, which I really like him in. Then with Magic Mike, Side Effects. This leads to things like Foxcatcher, The Hateful Eight, Hail Caesar, Logan Lucky. Of course, we have 21 and 22 Jump Street, which are hilarious. But oh, yeah. I didn't really have an opinion about this actor from when he stepped onto the for like the first 10 years of his career. I knew who he was. I knew his name. I saw him in things. I saw Stop Loss. He like cried. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it was Haywire and then Magic Mike where I went, oh, wow, this guy really has it. And I, I can still just see that essence play out over him where sometimes he's like, I can't believe that these people are letting me be in movies. Like, this is really, really cool. And Channing Tatum, he just grinded really, really hard to get where he was. <laughs> Again, no connections, just grinded. Yep. Like I a pony. <laughs> <laughs> like a unicorn. <laughs> well, Pony is Magic Mike's, you know, signature song by Genuine. You got to pay attention to these things, Nick. Well, I was cutting. I was making a reference to the unicorn that they mentioned because he's a horse. Okay, well that's fair. But I was all right. Whatever. I'm not going to argue with you about this. Yeah, yeah. That I, is yeah, funny how they too, how okay? Selma Hayek's daughter <laughs> how she had to leave the performance and he's like, you can't return till you hear Pony. She's like, Pony's starting at the that Butler was like, no, until after Pony. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, because she's still young, she can't watch it all. But Tatum, someone who's been brought up, it's just he really seems to have made the conscious effort to go, I appreciate the work so far. I do have something else to say. And we see a lot of actors do this. And I'm not going to throw any names under the bus, but they try to make that leap. I'm not talking a heavy dramatic leap. I'm just talking like, put me in coach to a bit more serious fare. It doesn't always work out. It worked out for him and I love it. Yeah. But I was, I was, I was a hater for stupid reasons in that first 10 years of his career. Oh, so yeah, you I like actively disliked him. And I, 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 I wasn't like that. I was like, this It's just another young actor. That, that's all it was to me. It's like, okay. I guess I get like that. Like I mm -hmm. see like whatever, like the flavor of the month kind of, I would just see the types of movies. Like when Dear John, <laughs> there it is. There's that sure, guy. Sure. Exactly, exactly. Being misinformed and, and judgmental. I, I do want to interrupt because you used to have this about another actor and I just want to say, you really, really used to hate this guy, and then you saw a movie he was in, and it all worked out, and that was Army Hammer. And now I know he's just <laughs> one of your favorite actors. I think he's in good shape. And you saw Call Me By Your Name, and you're like, man, I used to hate that guy, but I love him now. He's doing. How's his career going? He's doing well. He's doing great things. He's doing Is really. He? He's doing. Ta he's doing tasty things. I thought. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Okay. Anyway, back back on Chan here. Back on Channing. Um. It. 21 Jump Street was was the movie that like turned me around where I thought he was just absolutely hilarious. But I, I still hadn't seen Magic Mike. So yeah, yeah. I'm just now coasting on like, oh yeah, he's an entertaining guy. I like him. And then Magic Mike just 
there's something so easy about him. Yeah. And I think he's kept that up in all of his movies. Uh, and and I really enjoyed him in The Hateful Eight. Oh, he's so good. I thought yeah. that that cameo was really, really good. I, I Yeah, so now I'm just a giant fan. Like, I'm like, he, he is now like a reason I'll go see. Like, I almost, I, I wanted to see The Lost City earlier this uh, year whenever it yeah, came I out. Yeah, I saw it. Just because yeah. he was in it. And he's in it with Sandra Bullock and they do great work together. It's it's the movie's exactly what you think it's going to be, but he's just kind of fun to watch. You know, it's yeah. if you want to go watch them banter back and forth and then Brad Pitt shows up, it's like, oh, OK, cool. That was that was fine. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan and I've, I'm always looking forward to what he's going to do next. I just it's fun yep. that, you know, we're on that evolution with him. Selma Hayek, who is 56 years old and <laughs> looks <laughs> That's I've been watching her since Desperado. And for my money, I mean, she's just I, I don't know. God bless you, <laughs> Selma. Desperado from Dust Till Dawn. The faculty. I love the faculty. Frida, which she got nominated for an Oscar. She has worked with Soderbergh, but only once in traffic. A very small role as a cartel's girlfriend in traffic. And I'm glad they found a reason to work together. Uh, I don't know how much I want to go into this. Maybe it's worth mentioning that. Magic Mike's Last Dance was filming with another actor, with Tandaway Newton. She used to go by Tandy Newton. And that didn't work out, and they brought in Selma Hayek. So it's kind of, when you watch the movie or reconsider Magic Mike's Last Dance, knowing that Hayek was brought on in the middle of production, and they had to reshoot all those scenes and, you know, start again. And she just, it doesn't seem like that. It seems like she was prepping and prepping for it. Because, God, I just thought she really owned it. And, it, you know, she's, she's not just this, like, woman with a lot of money or this damsel. It's not that. She has a lot of fight and a lot of power to her. And I love that. Like you said. You oh, know? she yeah. She's watching her navigate what she wants, like, as just an actor in this movie is just incredible. Yeah. Like, even from the opening scene where she's asking for the dance to the way that, like, her kid blows up her spot. <laughs> when she's like oh you're the queen of the one act like you start things and don't finish them and and the way she deals with that and then the but she's also got all this fire it's just yeah like when she comes in that one scene the the, leaves the room it's just tanning in the butler and and he's like why do you stay with her as opposed to the husband and he's and he's like she has more balls. Yeah. And then yeah. she comes in and she just says, "Now you something listen, motherfucker." Yeah. She <laughs> and, just keeps going. And then watching Channing Tatum, his character knows how to deal with her character. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I think that's what makes their chemistry so good. Is like when she gives him fire, he's not like burned by it. He he actually right. knows right. how to like put it out with water. I don't know. <laughs> I, I do. We've talked about the cinematography a little bit. I do want to talk about the great Peter Andrews, a.k.a. Mm. Steven Soderbergh. Just, I, I just want to give <laughs> a little more appreciation to the fact that this dude shoots all of his own stuff. It's crazy. I mean, he's made some huge, bold swings in his work. I want to go through it just very quickly, like traffic, making those three areas look so different using radically different filters. It was so unique for the time for an American movie. I remember seeing that being like, what the hell, man? I can't look so crazy to me. It's so good. And the way he would interweave stories that ah, I loved it. I mean, even Solaris is like one of the best looking movies I think he's ever shot. I think that movie looks stunning. Ocean 12 is my favorite looking oceans movie. Things like The Good German, which no one talks about. He tried to film that using 
only equipment that was available like in 1944, which is pretty cool. So it's like an exercise where it looks like it's not a fully successful movie, but it's kind of like think like what Fincher did with Mank. But this is 15 years before Mank. So it's cool. Che one and two again. He pioneered the use of red cameras, which is a new thing, and he shot those movies with different looks, different shooting styles, different aspect ratios, all using the same camera. The informant is another one that really uses those filters well, and the whole movie just yeah. looks like corn, like yellow orange. Yeah, corn. it's just uh, it's so so cool. What to call corn? <laughs> It's funny that it looks like that. Yeah. Unsane and High Flying Birdie shot on an iPhone. Unsane is actually his last movie to be released in theaters. That's crazy because since then he's had High Flying Bird, The Laundromat, Let Them All Talk, No Sun Move, Kimmy. They all look great. I think they are all great. I enjoy watching all of them. So just I always want to give some shout out to, you know, there aren't too many directors who actually shoot their own films and it's. I cannot imagine. It's just so cool. It makes me appreciate him so much more. God. I, I, I just can't stress enough that, like, how is no one talking about him? But I, I bet you he likes that. I think, I think he'd rather keep this thing that he has going. He, yeah. He doesn't strike me as the type of person that wants, like, it's after the chase stuff. Like, after he kind of was like, all right, I'm done. I, 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 I'm done trying to, I don't know, please, I'm done trying to do what I think you want me to do what I should be doing <laughs> when he kind of then come back from this and just kind of have like a fuck you. I'm just going to do whatever I want. You can watch it. You can, he does want to make money. He does. It is a business. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yes. don't think he necessarily cares about, did he write Schizopolis? He did. So that's like Schizopolis was actually, that's a huge turning point because I, and that takes us right into the next section I want to talk about. Just, just to bat around, if you have any favorite kind of hidden Soderbergh films oh, yeah. that you want to talk about. I've seen them all. I've reviewed them all. I, I appreciate all of them. He would even admit he doesn't even like all of them, so we're not going to talk about those. But I, I, I want to use this section not necessarily to talk about the Ocean's Elevens, which, you know, those are big and great and all good. But we start with Schizopolis, which we have referenced on the podcast a few times, but he thought his career was just done. Yeah. He did not have success making like Kafka, King of the Hill, The Underneath, small movies that really not a lot of people have seen. Again, movies that some of them he's taking a screenwriting credit for. Schizopolis, he's like, I'm going to make this weird fucking thing that like, I don't even know how to explain, you know, I'm going to do everything myself. He even acts in it, never acts and he's the star of it. And it is this totally bizarre avant-garde experimental thing that he said he made thinking it was going to be his last movie. And then, you know, kind of the freedom in doing that and the fuck it allness, And like, of course, no one sees it, but Criterion picks it up. I own it. It's a really fun watch. The commentary is hysterical. One side, he does the commentary track because he does such good ones. The left channel, the left audio channel is someone interviewing the right audio channel about the movie, but it's Soderbergh interviewing Soderbergh. So you just oh hear my God. two. So it's two different audio tracks playing in your head. And he's like, what did you think about, you know, it's got that monotone fucking thing. Uh, so yes, th- that was from his kind of, uh, that's his brainchild really. And somehow it all worked out. He got, uh, his next movie was out of sight. He got offered that, that takes his career off, but let's start with Schizopolis. Let's start with some of these hidden Soderbergh gems and every movie I'm going to mention here. I do recommend 
They're, yeah. You know, they're not even really hard to find, but I would just recommend going, you know, okay, I want to see what this, like, here's the real artsy side of Soderbergh in, in any number of forms. But you, if you want to investigate this form thing we were talking about earlier, you can go watch some of these and be like, whoa, but Schizopolis, yeah, well, what a ride. That's just, and the fact that he wrote that, like, just kind of clues you into just how strange of a guy he, if that's his, if that's what's going on in his head. (laughs) Seriously. Doesn't, people go on, like, long stretches where don't they, like, say exactly what they're thinking and and there's no, like, subtext to it. They're like, hi, I'm shaking. I think I'll shake your hand. It's so weird. It's so weird. To me, I mean, <laughs> and, and then it goes into like speaking like like a, a language that doesn't exist, like it's just yes, gibberish. Yes, if you like that type of absurdity, definitely check that one out. It's it's one of those movies that if you are doing like a deep dive on Soderbergh, you have to include that. Yeah, you, you do. need to yeah. see that this was something that he did. <laughs> All the Soderbergh heads, like the diehard Soderbergh heads, you're going to see a lot of them who are like. There are, you know, all of them, including myself, go Oceans 12 is the best Oceans movie. But they're like, I mean, for a lot of them, Schizopolis is like in the top five. Like people just rep it. If you love Soderbergh, a lot of people really like this movie. Other people like Soderbergh's films and have no fucking clue what's going on in the movie and have never been able to finish it successfully. Yeah. But I'm staring at my criterion now and this conversation is just making me want to put it on even more. But <laughs> I could talk about, it, you know, any of his films. Do you have any any other like hidden gems you wanted to call out um, or any maybe that you've wanted to see that you have heard about? Well, Che is actually the the Oof, my number yeah. one. Yeah, because like I. Uh, just because of just knowing what the reality of that movie was for him. I, I want to see like what the thing that he poured his heart and soul into that just didn't work out the way that he was trying to do. I, yeah. I, and, and from everything that you've been talking about that movie, that's, that's the number one that I want to see from him R- real quick. Cause Che, Che is not yeah. uh, an easy sell. As far as I know, maybe criterion puts it up sometimes like, uh, to the point where I don't even own that. And that's a criterion I should own and I don't because they released it and it looks great. And to be clear, the movies came out exactly how he wanted, but yeah, no one gave a shit. Yep. I mean, critics did not give a shit. Audiences didn't. And if he's like, if I'm going to bend over backwards doing this and not I, all the time for this huge movie and this massive commitment, getting an astounding lead performance from Benicio Del Toro, who won Best Actor at Cannes, that is kind of what sullied his whole thing with like serious cinema, but I would love to hear your opinions on them. It's so cool to watch them back to back because they have, you know, one shot in like 235, the other shot in 619. So it's it's just cool. He's always playing with form like that. It's cool. Yeah. And I think it's on the Criterion channel. I've always seen it. Oh, is it? Is it okay. Left. Okay. Yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah. I didn't know if it was still on there. Um. Oh, yeah. But what else? Any others? I'm such a fan of Logan Lucky. Oh, I love I, that Another movie. Channing Tatum. Um, uh, collaboration that they have. One of the more sillier movies, again, that Soderbergh has probably done. Absolutely. And uh, and then I I really love The Limey. I don't think that's like a hidden one. I think for Soderbergh heads, like that's like a big one. We've talked about that one a few times. That's what I mean. Like we're talking about Soderbergh head movies that we're recommending to the masses and you cannot yeah. do any worse than Limey. I fucking love that movie so much. It's so good. And and then um, the the one that I'm still like I recommend this movie is uh, Let Them All Talk. Oh, great call, great call. I loved that. I just absolutely loved that. Oh, there is one thing that I do want to see, more, like on the line with Che. 
and that's the Nick. Oh my God. I have not yeah. seen I any mean, of that. Oh Christ. Yeah. yeah. We could go straight to TV. Like he did this mosaic thing for HBO, which you can go watch in six episodes. It's really cool, but yeah, I mean, you can still do this. They made an app for it and it kind of plays as a choose your own adventure and not, yeah. not like kind of a video game. It's going to end with the same stuff. You know, there, there's not like multiple endings going to end, but how you get there can be different. Or you can just go on HBO and watch. He assembled it in kind of, it's not even a, a linear cut. It jumps all around. It's really cool. But the Nick, which he did for Cinemax starring Clive Owen. And that was like, that was part of his retirement because he wasn't making a feature film. He was doing a TV show and they let him do whatever he wanted. Here's my selling point for the Nick. I love when they conceived of that as two seasons and we're done. So you knew that's all you knew that's what you were going to get. The Nick is one of the very few things, film, TV, whatever, that I would just have to put on mute and look away. It's some of the most realistic surgery scenes, if not the most I've ever seen. I don't know how the fuck they did it. They're so gory and gruesome to watch, but realistic for the time. You would love that show. That show rocks i don't even know how to find it now because like is cinemax still a thing i i don't know i don't yeah i don't know i i think that's worth like a blu-ray if they sell it on blu-ray that thing the nick is awesome yeah you've 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 been talking to me that about that one forever and and i really want to see that yeah because clive owen like he's not in as much anymore and there's this great (sighs) you know he's in like 20 hours of it i mean i can it's you know (laughs) when in episode two of your series you have your main character um injecting liquid cocaine into their penis i'm sold i'm just sold <laughs> what, what what more do i'm I need? sold i'm sold <laughs> what, I don't more, need, what yeah. more is there like it's all good yeah you can bring me an ocean of cocaine ah oh, it's great it's just oh it's so good a few for me Th- those are good ones those are good picks from you that thank you thank stuff you, you want to see yes you're welcome you're welcome he's made <laughs> i mean if you want it he's done he's gone heavy experimental a, fu- a few times full frontal which it stars a bunch of really, really famous people he made in 2002. That was all about form. It was all stripped down. No trailers, no makeup, no big cameras. They shot it on just like these DV cams. No, no anything, no permits, no nothing. But you get to see, you know, Julie Roberts, Brad Pitt. They're like in this really cool world just bouncing around L.A. It's, it's a fun little movie. Bubble in 2006, he made for next to nothing using all non-stars. It's a murder mystery and like small town America. Really, really cool. I did mention the girlfriend experience with yep. Sasha Gray. Again, they made that for like a million bucks. Streets in New York. Always really liked that. And then you got the iPhone movies, Unsane and High Flying Bird. Mileage is going to vary on those. Some people, you know, just don't like to see iPhone quality. And this is 2018 iPhone quality, but I really like those and had a fun time with them. And then Kimmy is one that I just keep going back to. It's kind of one that I like to put on and have in the background. Mm-hmm. I love Cliff Martinez's score. That is, I found a fun one. Really good COVID movie to, I don't know, I just have it all by TV and I'll be doing chores or something. You hear that music and, you know, Zoe Kravitz. Zoe Kravitz and Channing Tatum were dating for a while. I don't know if they still are. Is that a Soderbergh connection right there? Could it be? Ooh, could it be? Kimmy and Magic Mike's I last mean- dance. Oh, I don't know. Damn. I've always wanted to well. do a Soderbergh episode, but there's maybe we can someday. There's just so many. So I know that would be tough for you because there's just so many there. There are. But you've seen a good amount. But I've seen. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure I, we could. I could hang with that. Have you ever seen Sex Lies and Videotape? <sighs> a long I, I, like 
not I need to see it again. Yeah. Because yeah, I think when I watched it, it was on TV and I wasn't giving it attention and I was in and out. It was one of those. It's a just a great announcement of like American indie cinema. I mean, it won the Palme d'Or over Do the Right Thing. It was it's it was a big deal. Like it's crazy. It's a good movie. Oh wow. Yeah. And like typical Soderbergh fashion, again, a director who is not interested in sex. A lot of people were a little bummed out, I think, to find out that the main thing in that movie are the last two things of the title, certainly not the first. And I love that. I love him for that. I love that he did that. It's so good. Any other general thoughts on Soderbergh here? I just go see some of his stuff like, and, and find ways to kind of, in the way that we've talked about it, like see the way that he makes movies. And there's a look to all of his movies because of his shooting style. Like mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I'll always know when I'm watching a Soderbergh movie because of the look of it. And I love the look that he brings. I love the language that he speaks. I love the flavor. It makes me want to go back and watch his movies to now think about them in the aspect that he doesn't write and that he just sort of moves it. And I really like that about these movies, these Magic Mike movies. I I tell everyone I know to see Magic Mike. Like Hell yeah. that's that, that Magic Mike is might be my favorite Soderbergh movie. I love uh, that. I, love I know that. that's a bold statement. I need to really think that. But it's 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 that high up. I love it so much. Well, doing Soderbergh rankings, which we're not going to do here, but doing those is tough because you find out very quickly there is a prestige column and then like a fun column. Like I'm talking about, it's like yep. h- how do you rate like magic mike and traffic or magic mike and yeah uh you know solaris which solaris is so like just down down here and very still and quiet but that you know he's had a huge range to his career and i love this new path he's on keep making streaming movies and maybe every five ones they'll let him put in theaters i don't care i'm gonna watch them all yeah <laughs> move on to what are you watching here all right you want to go first yeah of course i'll take i'll take the responsibility fine you know, I know you, you so generously did it one time. You want me to pull up the fucking... I got the list right here. I'll fucking pull it up right now. I'll tell you. Yeah, you always talk about this list. So I watched this on a plane for the first time. Uh-oh. And I absolutely love this movie a lot. I can't stop thinking about it. And that is Paul Schrader's American Gigolo. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. You t- okay, so you were just on a flight. We both were. Separate flights. But I didn't have... T- uh, movie capability i don't have tvs so i listened to a book oh god okay so wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute have you never seen american gigolo i have never seen american gigolo whoa yeah oh wow dude you're gonna i i'm all for plane viewing i love plane viewing i don't hate on plane viewing at all because it locks you in and you have no choice and you're like all right here i am i i dig it but Man, you got to put that on like a good TV and sound system because those those fucking yeah. suits, those colors, that music. I mean, it's just oh the music. I had no idea you hadn't seen it when you texted me. I would have responded more. I mean, yeah, that's can't you see why that's one of Brady St. Ellis's favorite movies? Like it just uh, it's all so so stylish. That is a that's a trippy movie, baby. That's Paul Schrader. Oh God, I love that thing. I love American. Jim I Lowe. loved it, and and Richard Gere, man, I. That was like a performance from him. Like he was just perfect. He was perfect. absolutely no one perfect. And Julian K, I believe, is the yeah, yeah. And that's who Brady Sinella, sorry, named his a character in Lesson Zero about Julian. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It it, it was just it was just a, I I was I was floored by it. I loved every second. I loved this uh, as, as they say today. It was such a vibe. 
Yeah. <laughs> it was a vibe before vibe was a thing. But um yeah. I mean, a vibe you have Giorgio Moroder doing the music for it, like just yeah. cruising it like uh and something like they needed they wanted him to be very stylish, obviously, Julian K, Richard Gere. And they made a deal with like Armani to do it because Armani wasn't like big at the time. And then Armani genuinely became Armani because of American Gigolo. And that's just that's hilarious. Like it just turned it into a huge brand overnight. There, there is something there is something about uh, and I can totally see Brady Sinellis because he does it in his books. But in the in that scene where he's laying out the suits. Yep. It, yep. There's something about watching people do things like that. Just routine stuff. Well, this is that the guy is who me, wrote Taxi Driver, laying out the guns. Yeah, like, you know, yeah, yep. yeah, exactly. laying out the I guns. Love that shit yeah, too. I Watching love someone just like, like organize their life in in routine ways is just some of the most captivating shit to me. I love seeing that stuff. I love that process. Just someone, hey, if you can show someone getting ready, like there's no long monologue introducing Julian K. No. I tried to watch a few episodes of the Showtime John Bernthal thing. Oh. It was all backstory. It it, it was it just wasn't oh. like and I love John Bernthal. Love him. Just too much. Yeah, too love much. Him, yeah. It seems that fans of the movie weren't really a fan of that show and that's, you know, whatever, that's okay. They tried. Going back to this movie though. Yeah, I mean, you're just watching him get ready and how serious he takes and it's oh, he's just so cool and the clientele he has, you know, he's not picking up these uh, quote unquote babes. He has a very, he has a very specific clientele. They're older women. He knows how yep. to handle them, how to cater to them. Very LA movie, like a great LA movie. Very. Takes you down to Palm great. Springs, fucking Bill Duke, Hector Elizondo. Ugh, it's great. That's a great call. I had no idea you hadn't seen it, fucking Hector Elizondo. All right, I'm going to do two because I had planned to do one, but you just kind of inspired me. The main one I was going to do was uh, the limey. I was going to stay on Soderbergh uh, track, and we have talked about it. I'm mentioning it specifically because I just bought this 4K that looks, oh my God, it looks gorgeous. But folks, this thing is 90 minutes long. If you've seen it and enjoyed it a little bit, I just just buy the 4K. Like if you If you like owning physical media, because also what you're going to get is by all accounts, anyone who likes commentaries for movies, you are going to get a top five of all time director commentary, largely because Soderbergh and the writer of the, of the film, Lem Dobbs, do not really get along. And they are the only two people on the commentary track. Oh, and they argue amazing. repeatedly. And Lem Dobbs is clearly the aggressor. Lem Dobbs is pissed about certain reviewers for who have reviewed the limey he calls them out by name but then here's the other part though the fucking commentary is structured like the movie so it keeps jumping all around and you keep hearing the same thing a few times to the point where when you start you're like Okay, so someone just like messed up this track and they, I don't know how the hell they made it to this disc because it starts like really, really weird and he'll just keep doing that. And it's amazing. It's amazing. (laughs) So right down there to the form, he's fucking with the form of a commentary track, which he did on Schizopolis too. I love him. Go watch The Limey. The Limey is great. Second, what are you watching? This is actually not a recommendation wholeheartedly. It's a new movie release. And you said, I said that after our Magic Mike pod, if I liked the movie, we were going to record a separate like 15 minute mini ah. on a movie that just came out. I saw it. I didn't really like it. So I did just want to touch on Cocaine Bear very briefly because I saw it. I sat through it. So I 
may as well give it some pod time. I think by now, like by the time this episode comes out, people have probably heard, uh, you know, we all really seem to be in agreement about this. This is like a good 25 to 30 minute sketch that could they could have put on YouTube or Netflix or something, and it could have been pretty funny. But, you know, it's 95 minutes long and it is it's a long 95 minutes. There are so many backstories that I cannot imagine anyone really cares about. Like, this should just be about a bear who does cocaine and kills people. That's in there. Yeah. Actually has some, like, fucking brutal kills and some gory stuff. And that's when people in the theater were like, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we were all laughing five minutes in because, you know, your your energy's up. Your adrenaline's up. I'm sitting here for cocaine bear. Like, what the fuck is this thing going to be? And there was the place you could hear a pin drop by the end. No one's laughing. Uh, Everyone's just sauntering out like, oh, God, that. that was, and uh, people, I mean, I was like checking my phone going, my God, this thing is just going like on and on. And I don't, you know, I we use this podcast to promote movies. I just I just thought I'd give a, my two cents. It's kind of it's a typical thing of like great trailer, great premise, great title. Some good stuff in here does contain Ray Liotta's last performance, which is why I was going to see it and talk about it. It's good to see him as always. I will miss him yeah. forever. Good title again. Good, good premise. Funny premise, but not very much. Not unlike Snakes on a Plane. Genuinely, like everyone, it, you know, they got a lot of people in there the first weekend because it's ridiculous. You have snakes on a plane, and Samuel L. Jackson's going to say "motherfucker" and all that. Yeah. And then you you start that, and you're like, okay, this is a ten minute sketch, and that's it. This didn't need to be ninety five minutes. So that's all. Cocaine bear, whatever. I was worried that that might happen when I saw the trailer. I was like, this is either going to be exactly what I hope it's going to be or it's going to be exactly what you've just said. It's a bummer. It's a bummer. And I mean, they're doing the thing like in the previews and even in the beginning of the movie, like this is based on a true story. And it's like, okay, like this did happen. Someone did have to toss a bunch of drugs and it landed a bunch of cocaine out of a plane and it like landed in Tennessee and they found that like a black bear ate a bunch and then just had a fucking heart attack. That's what would yeah, happen. It just ha- died. Yeah. Didn't like kill anyone. It wouldn't like, so, uh, you know, that's all. It just, it's kind of just a nothing, nothing movie in and out, whatever. Adios. Bye-bye. Adios. No big Bye-bye. deal. Other <laughs> than magic Mike's last dance, of course, the grade, the movie I've given the highest grade to so far in 2023 is plane starring Gerard Butler. <sighs> so that shows you where the year is off to a good start. Seen oh most God. everything. Infinity pool, knock the cabin. You know, okay, missing, sick, okay, Megan, <laughs> Jesus. Well, Scream 6 is coming out. Scream 6, six is, ha, <laughs> <laughs> Scream 6 is coming out. I'm having to avoid watching the trailer everywhere I go. That episode will be coming. Uh, I will be out there for the Oscars in Los Angeles. Speaking of which, our next episode is going to be our Oscar narratives. Things are shaping up. The guilds are shaping up. We are recording this podcast the night of the day that the Screen Actors Guild Awards are will be announced and given out. So after that, the narratives are going to kind of be set. We're going to start Oscar voting. You and I are going to jump on mic and just talk about, I don't know, what maybe what we think is going to win, but more like what the town is saying is going to win, what we would want to win if we had a vote. None of my picks that I want to win are going to win. That's okay. That's just the way it goes some years. Yeah, and then Scream 6, we're going to have our friend Dan on. We're all going to go see it in 3D, and then we're going to record a podcast right after. If you we're want. seeing it in 3D? I've, why not? They're fucking Made doing it. in 3D? It. It, oh, okay. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah, let me see if they shot it in 3D. Okay. If they shot it in 3D, we're seeing it in 3D. If they didn't, I'll see it in 3D on my own. 
Because, yeah, I don't. Although I saw Titanic in 3D twice. Yeah, but that's Cameron. That's Cameron. In three days, like last week, and it was amazing. What are you trying to say? I'm trying to say. Game six isn't James Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you trying to say? I can't believe he post-converted that 3D. It looks, the Titanic in 3D in theaters now looks like, it, it, it was just remarkable. I couldn't believe it because he did that shit in 2012 and it looked terrible. This looks great. It made me. Well, that's a whole other thing. It just made me really appreciate Titanic all over again. All right, we're getting off track here right at the end. Isn't it fun? Go watch Magic Mike. Go watch The Limey. Go watch a Soderbergh movie. We will be back soon to talk about this wild-ass Oscar race. As always, thank you for listening and happy watching. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. Send us mailbag questions at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to check in right before the 95th Annual Academy Awards and argue about the most current Oscar narratives. Who's going to win? Who do we want to win? Fun stuff. Stay tuned. Woo! Trying to get pumped. Yeah, baby. Big dick energy, (laughs) as the kids say today. Definitely can't include that. Uh, that'll make a little get more pumped. sense. It is, yeah, that'll make a little more sense. Okay. You want me to do what I should be doing? I'm, I'm cat sitting and a cat just jumped into my lap. Sorry. He'll just be here for like, a little bit. Hey, bud. Um, Jesus Christ. And uh, that's amazing. I was like, yeah. wow, it's happening. He sits, uh, he sits in my chest all the time. All right. Oh, Keep going. I fucking hate cats. Um, He's sweet.